Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Learn the economics and technology of Bitcoin by listening to interviews with Bitcoin's best and brightest. So today we have a really special returning guest, Dr. Safdin Amus. Now, Regular listeners, I'm sure you all know who he is, but just for anyone who is new, Safdeen is a Bitcoin economist, and he is most well known for writing the very seminal book within the Bitcoin community, The Bitcoin Standard. Safdeen was actually the first guest on my podcast, and now it's a pleasure to have him back on the show. Here's my interview with Safdeen. Welcome back to the show, Safety, and you have a special place in uh, this show as you are my first guest. So thank you very much for coming on. And, you know, now it's like 60 episodes on, not even a full year. So uh, very happy to have you back on the show, Safety. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm uh, delighted and honored that I was the first guest and I've uh, been doing my best to keep up with your astonishingly prolific output of uh, episodes. I can't uh, claim I've uh, listened to all of them, but I've listened to quite a few and I've uh, definitely enjoyed uh, what you've been doing with the show so far. I like... I like the focus um, of the topics, and I like um, the the fact that you get into these uh, questions in depth. So I'm delighted to be here again. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Safety. It's very kind of you. And look, I've been obviously following some of your work uh, very closely, and uh, I'm you know also. Uh, uh, listeners, make sure you check out Safedean's Patreon page because he puts up a research bulletin. So I've been reading some of your research bulletins, Safedean, and thought it'd be great to just dive into those a little bit further and give the listeners a bit of a taste on, you know, how 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 can we think about some of these things? Like, for example, what might Bitcoinization scenarios look like? Um, so I think that might be a good place to start. Um, in one of your recent research bulletins, number five, you talk about this whole concept of, well, what would it take to kill Bitcoin, right? And so this question comes up and obviously some of the most common uh, vectors, if you will, would be things like government attacks or banning. And for me, one of the insights that I really enjoyed that I took out of this is that were the government to ban Bitcoin, that would in some sense force people to recognize that the money they have in their own bank accounts is not really theirs. Uh, did you want to just expand a little bit around that idea? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the main point that I tried to communicate in that research uh, paper, uh, the fifth one, the fifth one in the series that I made, um, the, the main idea I wanted to communicate was uh, in terms of uh, how governments can kill Bitcoin. I think the discussion out there is uh, completely uh, um, to, I don't know how to, uh, uh, well, ass backwards, I guess <laughs> would be a good way of putting it because people think that, <laughs> people think that, you know, if government were to just uh, pass a law that bans Bitcoin, then Bitcoin goes away and then they get to laugh at us. And that's the end of the story. And I think it's actually the other way around. So in my opinion, if they do carry on some kind of, uh, the more restrictive governments are against Bitcoin, that means the more restrictive they generally are financially and um, uh, the worse their monetary policies are. So if people are trying, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> if people are trying to get into Bitcoin and governments are saying, if you buy Bitcoin, we're going to throw you in jail, then A, um, number one, we can tell, obviously, that people have a good reason to be buying Bitcoin. Otherwise, they wouldn't be risking going to jail and that um, government is uh, uh, trying to stop them uh, from it. And the fact that it is trying to stop them means that government is imposing the other thing that we can tell is that it is imposing financial restrictions on them and so that ultimately is bitcoin's use case bitcoin's use case is moving money around the world without having to report to your government and so the more governments create uh, restrictions like this the more problems they create the worse their monetary policy is and that's not just you know the, the governments of the western main economies i think it it applies all over the world the more bad cases of uh, monetary policy we find the more zimbabwe's and venezuelas there are the more people are going to be seeking bad currencies and the more they try to ban them 
the more they emphasize to their people that you know you are not really the owner of your own money so if your bank tells you you can't buy bitcoin with your bank account that's just really an advertisement for bitcoin well if it was my bank account and if i could just spend money from my bank account and use it to buy things um if i'm sorry if i can't if you're telling me that i can't send money on from my bank account to buy the things that i want then that's not really my money wouldn't it be nice to have uh, some kind of money that I myself own and control that I myself can send around the world. You know, I think that kind of thinking that is the real economic incentive that drives adoption for Bitcoin. And I think if we've learned anything from the 20th century and from all the um, catastrophic attempts at making economic central planning and socialism work is that you know if you're gonna fight a war against prices and against markets you're gonna lose there's no way around it nobody fights a war on prices and wins you know the soviet union tried to ban jeans pants and we can go to russia today and you'll see all sorts of people walking around wearing jeans and the soviet union is gone that's just how it works when you try and make yourself as a government come up against economic incentives you know economic incentives will uh, manage to overcome whatever you try and do them and we see that in cases as silly as potentially insignificant as jeans. well it's not really insignificant or silly it's it's not fair jeans is a decent technology for wearing pants that solves a problem for uh, people around the world but you know something like bitcoin is far more significant and useful than jeans bands. So the notion that uh, you're just going to kill economic incentive, the economic incentive that exists for people to use Bitcoin by passing a law that uh, criminalizes it, I think is fanciful. I, I don't see that happening. So um, the, the, the on the contrary, what I argue in that paper is that the way for governments to kill Bitcoin would be to do the exact opposite of what the no-coiners want and the exact opposite of what the Keynesians and the people who hate Bitcoin think would work. The way for them to kill Bitcoin is for them to make the economic incentive to use Bitcoin irrelevant, to make the demand for using Bitcoin go away at the source you know they need to offer a technology that is better than bitcoin that is that can obviate the need for bitcoin or at least they need to try i mean that's really the way they should be going so in my mind i think that the most effective thing that governments could do to kill bitcoin that's what i argue in that piece in that piece the most effective things government could do would be um to go on a gold standard if we go back to the monetary system that we had in 1895 or in 1990 or 1900 you know the classical gold standard where in all governments all the main uh, uh, countries and central banks of the world utilized the gold as money and only had different currencies that were different weights of gold Plus, you had a much larger margin of um, economic and financial freedom where people could send their money abroad without the government uh, uh, knowing and interfering and deciding. If you had that kind of monetary system, I th and, and if you had it worldwide, or um, I think that would seriously under, un undermine the demand for Bitcoin. You know, if... Imagine if all the countries that are witnessing high inflation, all the people that um, are going through episodes of um, hyperinflation or high inflation, witnessing all of the problems and the um, government corruption that comes along with it and all the government spending and all the wars that come along with it. If we weren't all, as people living in the world in 2019, if we weren't all scarred by a century and five years of government control of money, I would say the impetus for Bitcoin would be far weaker. And I think the impetus even for inventing Bitcoin would not have been there. I would argue if the world was still on a gold standard until today, I think there would have been arguably not much demand for the invention of Bitcoin. Because if you think about the political and economic institutions that existed in the 1900s, much of what um, is today considered radical libertarian or cypherpunk ideals was just the norm for civilized societies back in the 1900s. You know, you weren't expected to disclose 
to your accountant and lawyer and your government and everyone in essentially who can hack into your government, which is everyone today. You weren't expected to disclose to them everything that you to disclose to them uh, everything that you spent and earned, and that was just how normal societies functioned. Um, it's completely insane today that we live in this world where uh, money and wealth has to go through a central authority that dictates what's legitimate and what isn't, rather than that just being the spontaneous order of the market itself. So I think the closer we return to an, a system like that, the more likely, uh, the, the less demand we would have for Bitcoin. And I think, on the other hand, the more uh, we go to a system that is restrictive for Bitcoin, the more you feed the fire of Bitcoin, the more you provide uh, uh, fuel to, to to this fire that continues to grow. And that's why I think, you know, if, if people want to really get serious about eliminating Bitcoin, this is what they should be thinking about. They should be thinking of it as monetary competition and thinking that the better the monetary policy of the central banks around the world and the more financial freedom they allow their citizens, the uh, worse off Bitcoin is and and the worse and the less likely Bitcoin is to succeed. Right, and the other component with that, and obviously agreed very much with that, and I suppose from a government point of view, looking into their own incentives to let's say spend a lot of money, they will kind of come up between that rock and a hard place because obviously they want this, you know, this. They want these deep debt capital markets through which they can sell gov- you know, government bonds uh, so that they can fund all these things. But at the same time, if they allow this system too much, then it drives Bitcoin adoption. And so I suppose that kind of brings us to some of these different scenarios that you outline. And we might call them Bitcoin scenarios or Bitcoinization scenarios. And one of them is actually central bank adoption. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I mean, some people think that um, uh, it's likely that we'll see central banks adopt Bitcoin. And I have to admit, I'm generally skeptical of this. And I, you know, I discussed it in my book um, as, as, as a possibility. And I discussed it as a sort of way of explaining how I think of um, Bitcoin eventually growing as a settlement layer, similar to central bank um, settlement uh, across the world and that is uh, that bitcoin doesn't you know the main point of the book that bitcoin was that bitcoin doesn't replace uh, your uh, visa and mastercard and maybe even not even uh, western union bitcoin um, is best built to replace uh, high value transactions between large financial institutions or central banks and so Having said that, you know, I, 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 you know, in my book, I don't get into uh, fortune telling or uh, um, trying to predict the future. Generally, I try and avoid doing that as much as possible because, um, a, I have no idea what's going to happen in the future, and b, you know, you're just setting yourself up to getting laughed at. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but generally, you know, I do, I, I, I have no strong opinions about the future. This is the way that I would put it. So I, I'm, I'm not making the arguments. Anyone who's read my book knows that I'm not making the argument that central banks should be buying um, Bitcoin. That's their problem. I don't work for a central bank, and I can't answer that question on their behalf. And I don't really make the prediction that they will be uh, buying it. So in these bulletins is where I start to take these ideas um, in looking at these ideas in more detail and seeing their likelihood. And I, you know, looking at the question of whether central banks buy Bitcoin or not, I lean more towards thinking that they will not. And I think, this, you know, this is the main point from my book, why the subtitle of the book is that Bitcoin is the decentralized alternative to central banking, that it's going to exist as a global free market uh, system that allows us international settlement of payments parallel to central banking. And because ultimately, that's really the key thing to understand is that today, the only way that you can send money internationally is through, well, 10 years ago, there was only one way, which was through central banks. Today, we have one other way, which is Bitcoin. That's really the only way in which you can send money internationally without having to go through the global central banking uh, um, monopoly that governments uh, have. So, um, 
in in this regard i see bitcoin more likely to emerge and continue to grow as its own ecosystem on the web primarily with many thousands or tens of thousands of nodes around the world maybe many more over time um and it'll likely grow towards this kind of apolitical settlement layer where people can um, have free market transactions across the world without having to go through government. And I think, you know, my idea is that uh, on the question of government adoption, there are several reasons why I don't think it's likely. And I think the primary one of them is uh, just about the mental models of people in the central banks. I think central bankers are educated and programmed to be the last people to grasp bitcoin and i think that's a beautiful thing <laughs> it's, it's 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 a great feature in bitcoin that it's always going to be the central bankers in every country who will be the last to believe that it can actually work you know when 95 percent of society is already on bitcoin and if we get to that point, the last 5% in every country, I am willing to bet, will contain most of the central bankers and the economists. Because if you if you read everything that uh, they teach in um, uh, PhDs and PhD programs in economics, it's all essentially about how you know your job as an economist is the control of the money supply and the managing of the interest rate. You know, and that's the one sacred cow of all mainstream and acceptable schools of economic thought you know that's the way you get a job in a university by uh, submitting to this idea and so it's um, it's it, it's extremely unlikely that uh, these kind of people will be uh, uh, able to accept even the idea that an apolitical uh, form of money can exist and can uh, and and can succeed and so I think they won't really uh, enjoy it and, and you know people are always making noise about um, central banks wanting to break away from the US dollar and wanting to use other currencies uh, but I think the, the shelling point of the US dollar is very strong and you know obviously US foreign policy and its influence is also quite uh, persuasive um in <laughs> to put it politely let's say um and it can have its influence on countries that think to go to, to step out of this but you know people continue to talk about using um other currencies but there really is no easy way to just switch to another currency and um switching to bitcoin implies to a very large extent switching to a hard currency that's going to tie the hands of central banks in in some ways and i i don't think they would uh, they would like that and in general i would i would just say that central bankers are more in love with easy money than they hate having to deal with the dollar so no matter how much uh, they make noise about hating to be dealing with the us dollar reserve they are still that they'd still prefer you dealing with the us dollar than dealing with hard money because at least with the US dollar you know they can always borrow more on the global capital markets and there's always the IMF and the World Bank um, you know loan sharks ready to provide your president with any amount of money they ask for as long as it gets the population in debt uh, for many generations so I think that game of international um, uh, lending and fiat money allowing governments to overspend just makes governments highly unlikely to get on the game uh, with Bitcoin. And I think that's a good thing. I, 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 I want them to be the last. <laughs> I want normal people <laughs> in free markets and productive people to grow. And that's essentially, you know, how I see this developing most likely. It's going to be an alternative economy um, in, in a similar way to how things used to function in the Soviet Union. That there was the official economy where people had official high-ranking prestigious jobs uh, that paid um, very well and you know with your salary you were able to afford all sorts of uh, wonderful things but of course if you went to the supermarket those things were never there i mean you could still buy them if they happened to have them and the price was very affordable affordable but they were just never there so um, 
um, if you wanted to actually get anything, if you wanted to buy anything, you had to go to the black market. That's how anyone in uh, in, in in Soviet and socialist countries was able to survive. Um, so you had the black market effectively become the real economy eventually because you know the, the Soviet economy, the socialist centrally planned economy all collapsed into dysfunctional rust as Mises had so uh, accurately predicted many decades earlier, you know, socialism would just simply lead to a collapse of economic production. And the only economic system that was left in these economies as socialism collapsed and as the national currencies uh, collapsed, the only economies that were left were the black economies. And then from that, the black markets, and from that, essentially, the, the entire economic system was rebuilt. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think it has to be this drastic. We don't have a communist system. Uh, the fiat world still has private property. So yes, they have a shitty centrally planned um, Soviet currency, which is not ideal, but it is uh, much better than the Soviet system because you still have private property and people are able to um, own things and invest and sell. But, yeah. One interesting insight there is also just that many of these central bankers and those types, they would prefer to stay in the fiat paradigm, even if they're not the king of that paradigm, right? Even if you're not the US kind of central banker. Yes, it's still a pretty good racket uh, being in charge of a you know, small country's central bank. I mean, it's, it's still great. And millions of people all over the world dream of that kind of uh, um, kleptocratic job and to be able to print money and abuse it. So highly unlikely that they would start uh, thinking of things like hard money as their motivation, I would say. Mm. And and I think another area that you touch on when you go through some of these other scenarios is perhaps you call out some of the, and perhaps many of us were guilty of this in our earlier understandings of Bitcoin of like, oh my God, hyperinflation and Bitcoin is just going to take over. And, you know, it, perhaps that was a little bit early or overly exuberant. And other than certain kind of euphoric periods, for example, you know, December, November 2017, when everyone thinks, oh my God, hyper-Bitcoinization is upon us, right? Other than those times, I think you do well to point out that it's more likely that we'll see this sort of continual waves of adoption, but it will be a parallel alternative. So rather than the hyperinflation scenario, it might be termed more like the smooth upgrade scenario. And I guess maybe you can also contrast that for us with the monetary vigilante role, which is number four on your scenario list. Yeah, I think generally a lot of people discuss hyperinflation as being the thing that Bitcoin could do. And I think this is... Uh, uh, you know, having been a gold bug uh, before being a Bitcoiner, I recognize this kind of uh, um, apocalyptic uh, doom mongering. Uh, you know, once you learn about how the monetary system works, you start thinking, well, clearly this is going to collapse tomorrow. And um, this stuff obviously exists a lot uh, in gold circles and in Bitcoin circles. But I think there's a good reason to understand why we haven't had hyperinflation in general over the last – I mean, there's a, there are good reasons for why we haven't had uh, hyperinflation over the last few decades and for why – I'm not sure that uh, I think it. I think it's unlikely that Bitcoin would cause hyperinflation. I think if we do get hyperinflation, it would be similar to the situation of Venezuela or Zimbabwe today, where you know they have hyperinflation, and some people are moving to Bitcoin. But it isn't Bitcoin that's causing the hyperinflation of Zimbabwe. So Bitcoin is just going to be there. Um, you you know it 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 it'll be the hyena that will come to pick uh, the carcass of hyperinflating countries, but it won't be the one that will hyperinflate them. And I think this is an important distinction um, because um, the, the the idea that we'll have hyperinflation. If you look at all the examples of hyperinflation that we have uh, documented, uh, Steve Hanke has a good uh, uh, project to document inflation around the world. And if you look at all these examples, in every single one, the driver of inflation was always uh, the increase in the supply. There was always an increase in the supply. 
and that's really what creates inflation obviously there is there comes a point during hyperinflation where people also dump the currency and they want to sell it and then the value collapses completely but that comes after an increase in the supply had already taken place inflation can't happen on its own if the supply is limited um, and there's no increase in the supply there's you're not going to get hyperinflation you might get variations in the in, in in demand for the currency changes in the value of it but for the value to completely be eradicated um, as happens in the case of hyperinflation that takes some uh, proper uh, monet- money supply expansion. So if central banks do that, we would get um, hyperinflation, but it would have nothing to do with Bitcoin. What I think is continuously missed, um, many people miss these I, the, this, uh, this, this contention, is that while we think of Bitcoin as reducing the demand for um national currencies because you know well people we see people say selling their dollars and buying bitcoin and we think oh well uh, you know if bitcoin goes up everyone's going to buy then everybody buys the price goes up even more and then the dollar goes to zero but that ignores the effect of bitcoin on the supply of dollars and this is a it's something i haven't heard anyone point out before but if you think about it the creation of the dollar, and this also helps us understand why we haven't had hyperinflation in uh, general, the, the the creation of the money supply of dollars happens through uh, credit generation, through debt. So when central banks issue credit, uh, sorry, when banks issue credit, um, they generate new money. And uh, so you have to have new borrowing take place in order for the money supply to increase obviously there are other ways of increasing the money supply but you know the government can still print a lot of um, um, money um, and the central bank can just print physical currency but that doesn't really happen um, that's not really the cause of inflation that's more the the, the increase in the supply of the physical currency is uh, almost uh, inconsequential towards the total money supply because the majority of money is not physical the majority of money is credit created by the banking system and uh, that's why when we have financial crises and recessions the money supply collapses because um, as that debt is written off or as these banks go bankrupt the uh, money supply is reduced um, because the credit is reduced so when we understand that money creation happens through credit creation we need to think about what would happen if bitcoin adoption continues to grow so imagine let's say hypothetically speaking uh, bitcoin uh, the number of people using bitcoin continues to grow every year uh, for the next 20 30 years that it becomes a significant economic force in an economy well as you see more and more people joining the bitcoin economy switching from the old economy and you can think of it you know as um it's it's, it's uh, similar to upgrading from one form of technology to another say people went from vhs to dvd as the number of people who move to the new technology uh, uh, rises not only will there be less demand for holding dollars there will also be less demand for borrowing dollars there will also be less demand for credit in us dollars and so people if you've moved towards bitcoin and if you've started holding significant amounts of bitcoin and it has appreciated you know people who have moved to this uh, new economy where bitcoin continues to grow and its value appreciates we know if bitcoin continues to grow then the value is largely to go up significantly because and doesn't supply is limited in its basic supply and demand so if that were to happen you would imagine the people who get into Bitcoin are going to be able to start accumulating savings quickly, and that would eventually, on a long enough timeline, that would allow them to pay off their debt and would make them less likely to want to go into debt. That applies on an individual level and can even start to apply on a um, institutional or commercial level. You know, your business becomes 
a credit based uh, sorry a, an equity based business instead of borrowing so you're able to pay off your bank loans and then you decide why should i continue to borrow i can just continue to accumulate and hold on to bitcoin and move towards the new economy as 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 you start um, receiving payment in bitcoin and are making your payments in bitcoin this becomes more and more of a tenable proposition and it becomes more and more likely for more people to do it so you would expect if bitcoin were to grow that you would not just have a decrease in the demand for dollars, you would also have a decrease in the supply of dollars. And that's why I think we're not likely to see hyperinflation happen because these two forces can largely cancel themselves out. Obviously, it's not going to be smooth witnessing all of these changes, but you know, it's never smooth with fiat money. That's why you don't do fiat money. It's always bumpy and uh, messy and volatile and uh, requires central planning, and that never works. But these kind of central banks, you know, as long as they can, the modern central banking uh, banks, as long as they can keep credit creation within the banking system, within some sort of tolerable levels, and generally they can because banking is a centrally planned government-run industry everywhere in the world, as long as they manage to do that, they can prevent hyperinflation. So I would expect it would be more likely than in the modern Western economies that have had central banks that have managed to prevent hyperinflation over decades. I would expect that uh, the growth of Bitcoin would not lead to hyperinflation. I don't think that it is necessary that it would lead to hyperinflation. In fact, you can just see those two economies continue to grow in parallel to one another, like two separate ecosystems. And eventually, you know, uh, Bitcoin just continues to grow further and further. The other economy, I, you can sort of see it becoming more and more as a sort of uh, um, centrally planned, centralized uh, economy. I think you know it's 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 the fiat economy. So it's fiat, uh, it's fiat money and fiat food and fiat jobs and everything, fiat news and. Uh, Basically, you know, that world of government money is going to become more and more centrally planned because it's inevitable, as we see all over the world, central banks effectively now run their economies because they're owning more and more of the stock market and the bonds and everything. So these economies are heading towards central planning and they're heading towards low real productivity and they're heading towards inflation masked through, you know, reduction in the quality of foods and um, i think on the other hand you'll have the hard money economy that is the bitcoin economy grow independently and that is a uh, you know being that there is no parasite on the top of it that is constantly skimming the value created by the value creators in that economy that would likely to be to that would be more productive of an economy and uh, I think you know it's 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 going to be the free market. It's going to be the internet's free market, and we're more likely to witness slow declines in the um, slow decline, slow orderly decline as we uh, you know retire the old uh, manual monetary systems away and uh, move towards our uh, futuristic utopian digital monetary system running on electricity and no human intervention (laughs) yeah that's great i think there's a lot in there um and one of the key insights that i think yeah you're right that not many other people have spoken about is this idea that we will see less credit creation like we currently do right now. And credit creation in the commercial banks is actually how a lot of the money is created in a fractional reserve banking system. Now, uh, you know, we've spoken through some of the different uh, scenarios and spoken about what's, you know, what's a little bit more likely as a scenario. So as we're saying, the smooth upgrade. Uh, But another concept you touch on in your research bulletin is this one around why gold should not be completely discarded or disregarded. Do you want to uh, outline some of your thinking there? Yeah, this is. Uh, I'm afraid this is going to make me slightly unpopular with some Bitcoiners, but uh, yeah, I think the, uh, the 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 Schadenfreude and the uh, uh, obituaries that you hear about gold's imminent death they might be um, highly premature and exaggerated. I think uh, Bitcoiners might. Uh, 
might consider having a little bit more humidity against a monetary asset that has had, uh, you know, 10,000, 6,000 year head start over our little lines of uh, magical internet beans. Um, so I think the key thing to understand is that, uh, you know, gold has enormous liquidity all over the world even today, even after people think of it as having been demonetized. But still, we have many trillions of dollars worth of gold locked up in vaults all over the world and locked up in jewelry all over the world used as a store of value. It's a significant amount of wealth all over the world. And in situations where monetary a monetary system could collapse, people will resort back to trading in gold because it has an enormous amount of liquidity. Now, the question is... Um, if, if I think another another way of thinking of bad scenarios for Bitcoin, the other bad scenario for Bitcoin that I discuss is, imagine we have the other extreme, which is that uh, monetary policy continues to go really badly, and we continue to have um, hyperinflation all over the world. You know, Venezuela grows, uh, it stops being just Venezuela, it becomes Venezuela and Turkey and Argentina, and then soon enough. Uh, Europe and then soon enough the US dollar and all these currencies all over the world are collapsing. Assume, I don't think it's going to happen, but I think it's it's useful as a, as a thought experiment. Imagine all of the world is falling into hyperinflation. Imagine this happens tomorrow. Now, the size of the global liquidity of Bitcoin is still nothing. It's still about 80 billion dollars or 100 million dollar billion dollars which is effectively nothing it's less arguably it's less than one percent of the world's population some people estimate a little bit more than one percent i would say for bitcoin it's arguably less than one percent but you know it's within that range it's definitely no more than three percent five percent of the world's population but that's nothing so in terms of uh, if you think about gold, on the other hand, the liquidity for gold is about uh, $7 trillion to $8 trillion. In other words, that's about 100 times larger than Bitcoin's liquidity. That's 100 times the um, possibility of being able to make a trade with somebody with that currency. And I think this is the way to think of it. So, in, in you know, Yes, you're, you and I know a lot of Bitcoiners because we're obsessed about it. But, you know, when we want to eat tomorrow and I want to buy my steak and the government shitcoins in my pocket are no longer working, I need to find something that I can give the butcher so that he would give me the steak to buy. And the, you know, I need to find things that are valuable for me that he will find valuable. Uh, or, and when I want to sell my labor or my services or my uh, goods, I also want to find somebody who's going to give me something that's valuable to me that I think others will accept. So what really matters the most in that decision is what has the most liquidity. What am I most likely to pass on to others? And in that case, you know, gold still wins hands down because it has about 100 times larger liquidity than Bitcoin. So in the other example in which we move towards a world in which I think the way that I would explain it is if in a world in which governments are no longer intervening in money because they have destroyed their own currencies. In, in that kind of hypothetical world, and again, this is not an argument to say this is happening or this is uh, likely, but in that kind of world in which, uh, in which governments are no longer intervening in the market for money and we go back to having a free market and money, Bitcoin loses its most important uh, feature, Bitcoin loses its most important uh, value proposition, which is resistance to government. I mean, you know, for all of its um, uh, values, Bitcoin ultimately is, is optimized for one thing. For all of the things that it does, Bitcoin is ultimately optimized for moving value around the world without government intervention, without government control, without governments being able to co-opt it. But if governments aren't trying to co-opt Bitcoin or gold or any other kind of money and they're allowing people to experiment freely with all kinds of commodities as money in that kind of world, I'm not sure Bitcoin's value proposition is enough to overcome the 6,000-year uh, first mover advantage that uh, 
that uh, gold has. I'm not entirely sure that it would be enough uh, for people to um, s- s- switch to Bitcoin because you know the the, the liquidity is a sticky thing because it's not easy for people to transition from one liquid asset to the other there's no orderly way of doing it because as you start transitioning the value of your asset declines and so the 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 later uh you are in the process the the worse off you'll be so generally it's you know once a shelling point has been agreed upon monetarily it's not easy to switch to another one there has to be a very strong and compelling reason fortunately for bitcoin that reason exists because these governments aren't going away anywhere. You know, my uh, uh, libertarian fantasy of uh, governments just dying and disappearing, I would not bet on it any hap- happening anytime soon. So governments are still going to be around for the foreseeable future, trying to manage their monetary systems and continuing to force their people to use their stupid shitcoins. And um, I think that's great news for Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, look, I think you make some great points there that it's a little too soon to call it in, in terms of, you know, gold has no role, that sort of thing. I think that, you know, you're right to point out that there can be, you know, that, that you know, we should consider that. And I think this also brings up another point that I've seen you um, touch on before and perhaps it, it is relevant around this idea of custodial wallets, custodial banking, fractional reserve. Now, you and I are both full reserve guys. Uh, we sort of you know favor a full reserve system. And in to to achieve that, one concept you've touched on is this idea of you know the cost of running a bitcoin full node versus a you know what we might call a gold full node now that changes the decision it changes the calculus around monetary intervention can you outline some thoughts there yeah i think you know this is possibly the one idea that i uh, would really like to if i had a time machine i wouldn't change anything in my book yeah, other than a bunch of typos here and there, and I would add this uh, this one idea that I think would have really capped off the book excellently, but it really only occurred to me after uh, we went to print. Um, and, I, and and it's it's just the idea of once you've understood Bitcoin's decentralization and how Bitcoin functions and how Bitcoin um, is able to uh, uh, is able to continue to operate. Um, you see that, and, and if you remember the 2017 scaling drama, you see how important the concept of running a full node is to the operation of Bitcoin. I don't think I need to explain that to you. Um, and you know, your listeners should, should probably be very familiar with uh, how important um, the fact is that Bitcoin runs because the nodes decide that they want to run Bitcoin. And the Bitcoin uh, consensus and code is determined by what the nodes uh, decide. That's ultimately who uh, controls Bitcoin. So the only thing that keeps Bitcoin decentralized and that maintains its monetary policy um, at uh, trust, trustless and immutable is the fact that nobody is able to just go and change the code willy-nilly. We can't just have a popularity contest and decide that we want to make more Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is just, as long as you want to run your own node, you can continue to run your node with Bitcoin according to the consensus rules. And anybody who doesn't want an inflationist Bitcoin is free to uh, continue with you uh, continue to run the old Bitcoin with you. So Bitcoin is essentially inflationist proof because you can always run your own node. That's what it really ultimately comes down to. And the reason you can run your own node is because it's pretty cheap to do so. It's relatively easy. It takes a little bit of time. Um, but effectively, you know, when people compare it to downloading an app in terms of, well, you know, you, you download an app like Venmo, let's say it takes three minutes and now you're, you're hooked on to Venmo, but a Bitcoin downloading the Bitcoin blockchain takes a lot longer. Well, yes, but it's a very different thing from Venmo. You, you can't compare it to Venmo. You can compare it to shipping a gold bar halfway around the world. That's the real comp- comparison from Venmo for, for Bitcoin because Venmo 
you're sending an email effectively or a message to someone at a bank and they're sending a message to someone and they're crossing out entries on other people's ledgers across the world and there's nothing wrong with that um, but that's a very different thing from final settlement of hard cash and that's what bitcoin basically does so um the 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 fact that Bitcoin allows you to send money halfway around the world for uh, a relatively, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars cost in, um, in, in, in internet connection and hardware or whatever, the fact that it allows you to do that and send um, money around the world is what allows us to have a network of thousands of nodes that are very difficult to co-opt. And on the other hand, the reason, the, the fact that gold is, you know, it's, it's, it's analog Bitcoin, it's dumb Bitcoin, effectively, it's Bitcoin that can't be um, digitally sent around the world. It, you have to put it in a, uh, in, in, in a box and get it on a car and then get it on an airplane and then fly the airplane or fly the ship and pray that the plane or the ship doesn't sink uh, in, in the ocean. And then hope that it gets to the other part of the world and avoid the risk of being stolen. So that's that's really the alternative for what Bitcoin does. Now, the reason that gold lost its monetary role, and I discussed this in depth in my book, of course, is because it was centralized effectively. And this is the point that I missed in my book is just explaining that gold, just using the metaphor of gold, it's really expensive to run a gold full note. That's really, I think, the key point. There were, you know, the, the nature of gold clearance meant that the economies of scale were always going to lead towards people um, wanting to, uh, you know, the economies of scale meant that you're always going to have settlement become uh, more common. So you had more and more transactions being settled within the bank. So more and more people would have their money in a bank, and then you'd have more and more money in a central bank. And then by the end of the 19th century, you effectively only had one central bank around the world. The Bank of England was effectively the world's central bank, and everybody was running accounts with the Bank of England almost. Um that's just the nature of centralization with gold because it's just much cheaper than continuously moving and lugging physical gold bars around. And it's much cheaper than setting up a central bank that is able to clear gold and secure it. And of course, today that no longer exists because uh, you know even if you tried to build one of them, your main problem is that the FBI will shut you down or the US government will take exception to that kind of business model as they have with uh, E-gold. Uh, I think that's a very interesting story that people who are interested in Bitcoin should look at. I found, you know, explaining e-gold, once you explain e-gold, um, it becomes very easy to understand Bitcoin because e-gold is just um, essentially Bitcoin. But instead of digital uh, magic currency in the sky, we have an actual physical vault of gold. Um, that's their business model. But that was not allowed. Um and they were they were shut down. So that's really the the cost of running a gold full node. If you wanted to set up a gold central bank for clearance of gold, and you wanted to, to create a monetary system around the world that runs on gold, you need to factor in the cost of keeping the U.S. Army at bay and preventing them from uh, stopping you from doing that. So good luck on that one. Um, but with Bitcoin, you know, you need a few hundred dollars of hardware to do it. And that's ultimately what I think is Bitcoin's uh, killer edge. It's just going to continue to be decentralized because it's relatively cheap to keep it decentralized for a global system of clearance. And we're going to get more and more people with skin on the game, hopefully, who are going to run more nodes. And if that we maintain that, you know, Bitcoin continues to be decentralized and it resists government capture. And that's ultimately, I think, the most important thing for Bitcoin. Excellent. I, yeah, I couldn't summarize it better, really. So another question I was keen to ask you, Safedine, was around, obviously, stock-to-flow. So you have... To some, for better or worse, you've popularized that uh, concept within the minds of many Bitcoiners and that you've spawned many uh, derivative works. And one of which was uh, this anonymous account or pseudonymous account on Twitter, Plan B. And I believe you, you might have had a chance to uh, listen to the episode with him. And just curious to know your thoughts on his modeling of the idea. Yeah, so uh, I just also I, I saw his blog post. He wrote it about this, and I listened to his uh, interview with you. 
Um, he seems like a, quite an interesting uh, fellow. Um, what he's done is that he's uh, he's clearly more into mathematics than I am. But you know the old joke about Austrian economists. There are three kinds of Austrian economists: those who can count and those who can't. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, obviously, it's not entirely fair, but we can laugh at ourselves so that others don't laugh at us. Um, it's not entirely fair. Austrians don't have a problem with math. Um, it's just that we understand where it applies and where it doesn't. Um, so I'm generally a little skeptical of um, uh, the overuse of mathematics in, in economic questions. And I think generally mathematics are most useful in terms of accounting. If you think of most of the mathematic analysis that is done in the university economics today, pertains to measuring things that do not exist in real world, you know, things like utility, you know, so you're looking at a bunch of imaginary people and measuring their imaginary utility. And that's how you get your degree in economics these days. You do a bunch of imaginary math on a bunch of imaginary people with numbers that exist, uh, that don't really exist. You know, we don't even have a unit for utility, but that doesn't stop us from issuing entire degrees based on the concept that we can measure this thing. Um, so, uh, having said that, you know, clearly there is value to uh, numerical uh, indicators. And so, you know, my entire book discusses uh, the, the stock to flow number. Um, and I think it's useful as a metric to think about it because it expresses economic reality in a, in a, in a, in a, in a clear way independent of how people act around it. So you can see this force acting um, regardless of whether people know it or understand it. In other words, we, you know, we don't have to have people um, study economics and study the mining economics of gold, silver, platinum, palladium, um, copper, zinc, titanium, um, and uh, decide that gold is the one that's going to be the most suitable as money. The market on its own decided that, the market on its own did that, without anybody needing to understand it. I'm sure some people understood it, but the vast majority didn't. It was just a brute economic reality enforcing itself because whenever any of the other metals that are not as rare and not as hard to find, and that are that are destructible and consumable, like copper and zinc. You know they are continuously getting consumed. They are commodities. Whenever these metals uh, are used as a store of value, their price goes up. That just incentivizes more production, and all of these metals have a high elasticity of uh, production. They're easy to increase the supply of them uh, because the scale of production is always very large compared to the existing stockpiles. And so small increases in uh, production can result in significant increases in supply. That doesn't exist in the case of gold. And so over time, what happens is that you know people make investments in all kinds of metals and in all kinds of monetary assets and as a result, there is an increase in the production of all of these assets as a response to people using them as monetary assets. However, gold resists that because no matter how much people want to make of gold, no matter how much people want to make of zinc or silver, gold continues to have an annual new production that is very insignificant. Uh, compared to the total existing stockpile because that stockpile has been accumulated over thousands of years. So I definitely see the value in, in looking at the numbers, um, but he is more brave than me in trying to make a model out of it and to uh, model the uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, Bitcoin price as a function of the stock to flow. I, I, I am, you know, I'm, I'm quite, uh, from the Austrian perspective, we're skeptical of the idea that you can uh, place numerical constants on human action, predict uh, human action, because ultimately, even though this kind of force exists, it is ultimately humans that are buying and selling Bitcoin and that's, uh, or, or all the other assets. So 
I, you know, I would not put, um, I would not bet on these numbers being correct. But I think the trend that he identifies um, to a large extent is correct. If, if Bitcoin continues to operate, um, Bitcoin continues to function exactly as it says it does. You know, the money supply continues to increase in the same way it has been. I think we'll have, um, we'll, you know, we likely witness the, uh, the the value of Bitcoin go up in a way similar maybe to what his model predicts, but I don't think it would necessarily be because the stock to flow is necessarily uh, dropping. It's just the general aspect of the fact that the money supply is restricted. So, um, so that's why, you know, the relationship may well break down, but of course it is a log relationship, which makes a, a positive correlation, uh, you know, um, I mean, well, the log relationship is about the percentages of increase. So you would expect as long as there are percentages of increase in both and Bitcoin's stock to flows is programmed to increase, whereas, um, and, and the value is likely to increase over the long run. So if that happens, you're likely going to continue to get a pretty strong correlation and you could, um, you could see that. So, um, having said that, you know, I'm not entirely skeptical of these things. And I think, um, you know, as Austrian economists, they reject the use of these things, uh, not these things. I should be more specific, I have to say. Uh, Austrian economists will tell you there are no constants in human action, that there are no ways that you can quantify um, economic value uh, because value is subjective and interpersonal, so you can't really work on utility. However, you know, entrepreneurial judgment, the entrepreneur has to make the judgment and they have to use their intuition and they have to use their hunches and they have to use their math and they have to use every way they can to try and get a better approximation of the world in order to be able to make better predictions about how things will will function in the future so i see no problem with the use of those things from the perspective of the entrepreneur or the investor uh, trying to uh, understand uh, these aspects of uh, how assets will behave but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm likely a little bit skeptic that we have hit upon a theory or, you know, the model that correctly describes. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit too skeptical. Maybe I shouldn't be because, you know, if this turns out to actually foretell the future accurately. I, I would definitely jump on the bandwagon uh, back then <laughs> uh, when that happens. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm obviously not going to uh, turn it down, but... Uh, you know, I, I I'm also I, I'm I'm not sure that we can uh, make models with such precision in uh, predictive power for the future, but I'm happy to be wrong about that. We'll see. Yes. So I think yeah. Look, you're right. It's as Austrians, you know, and if you know, for listeners, if you're interested, I recommend uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's Economic Science and the Austrian Method. And one of the points that he makes is around truths as you know a priori synthetic truths and it's a deductive method however in this case as safety as you point out it's not correct to say that this relationship will hold true in every case and it may be that people can compute a certain relationship at, at a certain time but it we would not say that this is economic law but there are there is potentially some value to it from an entrepreneurial or an investing or a you know what we might call speculation uh, in that sense. Um, so yeah, thanks for your thanks for offering your insight there, Safetine. Um, and look, I think we've also got to talk about your research bulletins. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing with these and what's the plan with that going forwards. Yeah, so um, I've decided to start dedicating more time towards writing about Bitcoin because people seem to be liking that. So um, I'm uh, making this uh, subscription uh, research bulletin through Patreon, or you could also subscribe uh, through my blog. Um, and you can uh, sign up and get the monthly uh, a monthly essay or chapter of a book, you could say, on a question related to Bitcoin. So if you remember the Bitcoin standard, you know, it was mostly about um, history of economics leading, uh, history and economic history leading to uh, the creation of Bitcoin. And then the last chapter, we started discussing the economics of Bitcoin, but, you know, that was already enough for one book. I couldn't get 
get uh, much deeper into these questions. So this is what I'm doing right now. And I'm uh, doing it initially as a subscription uh, service. And uh, I'm going to turn it eventually into a uh, book. So if you really uh, would like me to write more, if you value my writing, uh, feel free to subscribe. If you can keep your time preference low and are willing to wait, you should be able to get these in uh, book form. In um, I make no promises, but you know, in a few months, several months, you should have this out in uh, digital and uh, paper book form for you to buy or pirate as you see fit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And if you're if you're interested in looking into that, you should uh, check out uh, Patreon.com/safedean. Or if you'd like to buy some of the earlier reports, you can just go to safedean.com/research. Fantastic. And yeah, I'll just point out to the listeners that I, you know, personally, I am a subscriber of Safedean's Patreon page, and uh, I get the uh, research bulletins. It's fantastic value. I personally think um you know the analysis and the quality it's it's really just unmatched at this level at this point because there's just so few people who really kind of are right at this intersection between bitcoin and austrian economics and you know just generally analyzing bitcoin from this point of view so definitely uh one to consider um but look safety and i know um we've we've uh, we're getting close to time so that's pretty much it but i just wanted to say thank you again for coming on and also just thank you for you know supporting me with this show thank you so much it has been a pleasure as always and i look forward to doing it again I hope you guys enjoyed that chat with my friend Safedean and let me know your thoughts as always. You can DM me on Twitter or you can find me on my contact page on my website, stefanlevera.com. A quick reminder also about Bitcoin 2019 Conference. So the website is bitcoin2019conference.com and that's on June 25th and 26th. I'll be there in San Francisco, so it'll be a good chance to meet some of you guys if you're interested. Uh, Also, just wanted to give a quick shout out to some of the guys who left me some five-star ratings and reviews. Stacy, Murray Rothbard's dog, and Lispmeister. If you guys wouldn't mind, just take a second, give me a quick review on iTunes or whatever platform. I really appreciate the support. It helps new people find me. Thanks very much, guys. That's it from me, and I'll see you next time.